Our sermon scripture this morning is from Matthew 28, verses 1 through 10, and that's on page 989. So you, uh, we might want to turn, I invite you to turn there if you have the Bible in front of you, 989 in your sanctuary Bible. Before we go to our reading, a few words of introduction. I want to show you a book that I have in my study. I was forced to buy it at great personal expense when I was in seminary, but I don't begrudge it at all. It's a great book. Jim, you have one. Yes. This is called The Synopsis of the Four Gospels. And actually, it's quite an interesting book because, uh, first off, have you noticed that the Gospels are sometimes quite similar to each other? But have you also noticed that sometimes they're kind of different from each other? And three of them, in particular, are kind of more similar than the, the fourth one. And those three are called the synoptic Gospels. That word synoptic means to see with. So that they, they kind of see in the same way. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic Gospels. They kind of resemble each other. But then you have the Gospel of John, which is quite unique in many, many ways. So what the synopsis of the four Gospels does is it has this column format. And I don't expect you all to be able to see it, but I'll hold it up real high here. You can count one, two, three, four columns and every time there's something similar between the first three Gospels and sometimes even the fourth Gospel, they'll present them side by side. So this is the four Gospels, but not in the order that you would read them, but side by side, and for comparison's sake, when they're next to each other. And you'll find that most cases it looks like this. Do you see the first three columns have a lot of text in them? There's a lot of things going on here that are similar to each other. Whereas John's column, the final column, is mostly empty. You'll get to other parts of the book, and you'll find that there's nothing but John's column. That's like this one here. Actually, there's nothing but Luke's column here. This is all Luke stuff, all Luke's special stuff. And sometimes there's, there's special John material, and there's sometimes there's special Matthew material. You can borrow this book if you want. It's a great for doing if you're doing a Bible study from the Gospels and you want to compare the gospel uh, narrative side by side with each other in real time, you can borrow it. It's, great. it's a great resource. Um, we think that the first three gospels either borrowed heavily from each other, like say Matthew and Luke borrowed heavily from Mark, or all of them bothered from, uh, borrowed from another source that we haven't seen yet, which would be fun to find it someday. Um, and then John seems to have his own materials, and in various places they're the same, in various places they're different. But all of them rely on eyewitness accounts of things. All of them have inspiration from the Spirit, but it seems that all of them did some work of either recording history in real time as it happened to them, or finding people after the fact and sitting down and making notes of what those people experienced. And all of that information got folded and crafted into the Gospels that we have now. Um, one interesting exception, not exception to this, but wrinkle in all of this, is that when you get to the Gospels, indeed, uh, when you get to the resurrection account, the resurrection account, and um, for example, here's the resurrection account in, in my book, and they all kind of track, but then you end up with a bunch of, of blank spots, and here, here's a John-only section of the resurrection account. Here's a lot of stuff missing from Luke. Here's a Luke-only part about the resurrection account. For example, Jesus on the road to Emmaus, that's only in Luke's gospel. It's not in any of the other gospels. When you get to the resurrection accounts, the gospels are actually very different from each other. They don't conflict with each other necessarily. They just each have one part of the story that they, that they tell. 
And it seems to me, it seems to me, that when it comes to the resurrection, they're relying even more on eyewitness accounts than on other parts of their Gospels. And we'll look into that. So what I'm going to ask you to do is we read this one set of eyewitness accounts of the resurrection from Matthew 28. Pay attention to who the eyewitnesses are in this story. Will you do that as we read? Make a mental note of who in this story would have been an eyewitness that would have told Matthew this story later on when he came to write the Gospel. So our reading is on page 989, Matthew 28, 1 through 10. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake. For an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. And now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this testimony about the resurrection. And we pray that you would add your blessing to it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so I really love a show. It used to be, I think, on A&E, and then it got dropped. But it got resurrected by Netflix. And so we all owe Netflix a huge uh, debt of thanks because it resurrects old shows that have gotten dropped, and they're really great shows. This is a show called Longmire. Has anyone seen Longmire? Do you like Longmire? Eh, it's, it's, it's like a B plus, you know, it's like maybe a B, solid B, B plus. It's a, it's a murder mystery show. Longmire is the, sort of the crusty, but really kind of canny and wily sheriff of Absaroka County in Wyoming. It's actually filmed in this beautiful place in New Mexico, but that's okay. They're pretending like they're in Wyoming. And he's the sheriff, and he's always, every, every episode, there's a longer narrative that's sort of reaching through many seasons, but each show has its own murder that he then has to solve, you know, and, and he pays attention to all the details. And, you know, like the standard mystery thing, it's like the third person you meet, they're probably the murderer. You kind of keep track, and you'll get it. But he's, he's, he's a great actor. He's, a, he's actually Australian. They got an Australian actor to play a Wyoming sheriff. But he's a great actor, because... He, he sold me on it. I, I, I just see Wyoming when I see him. And um, so, but we have a show called Longmire. Uh, you kind of know that the main character has to survive. Does that make sense? Like, but this is a testimony to sometimes, sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes the writing is so good and sometimes the acting is so good that Longmire gets himself into this corner 
and somebody's pulled a gun on him or somebody's about to end him. And I honestly think to myself, he's not going to make it out of this one. But then I remember the show is called Longmire. You don't kill off the main character of the show. And then you check the listings and you realize this isn't the season-ending show. This is the middle of the season. He's going to make it. He's going to pull through and something always happens. Somebody, you know, there's always a gunshot and you think he got shot. But really there's somebody over there who shot the person who was going to shoot him. You know how that works in Hollywood, right? But the show's called Longmire. And, and he always survives. And uh, something like this, now get this, is happening in the Gospels, especially the resurrection account. But not, you know, it's, it's actually a testimony to how well the Gospels are written, and it's a testimony to kind of how clueless the disciples are. But Jesus tells them over and over again, the Son of Man is going to be handed in over to, the, to sinners, and they're going to crucify him, and on the third day he's going to rise again. This is the Jesus show, Okay. If they kill off the main character, at least he's going to come back to life. But the disciples are so taken in by the writing and the acting, you know. And they get to this moment after the crucifixion, and they honestly think they're next. They saw their Lord get tortured to death. They're hiding. They're afraid. They're, tr they're planning their escape. They forgot that they're watching the Jesus show. They think that this was the season ender, not just the season ender, they think this is the series finale, and that Netflix is not even going to be able to bring this show back for them, right? They think it's over. And then it takes the reminder of testimony for people to tell them, no, just as he said, just as he said, he's told you this many, many, many times, it's not over when it looks like it's over for Jesus Remember that. And so then Jesus appears to people. <clears throat> now, I want, to, um, I want the children to repeat something after me. Because uh, I want to talk about just how different the Gospels get when it comes to the resurrection. Remember I said earlier it relies more on eyewitness accounts, and that's why they don't match with each other quite as well as other parts of the Gospels, especially the Synoptic Gospels do. And you'll find that in a lot of Matthew and also in the, a lot of um, Gospels, there's a narrator. I'm talking about literary, literary things here. If you were an English teacher, you'll love this, right? Because there's a narrator, and then there's those characters, and the characters have dialogue. But the narrator tells you things that are happening, you know? Uh, and so children, think about this. Think about... Uh, the narrator is telling you that there's a group of children who live at the edge of the jungle. Does that sound like fun? Living in a little village by the edge of the jungle? Sounds great, doesn't it, right? And what the children don't know, but the narrator knows, is that they're planning on taking a walk to their favorite swimming hole, right? Through a little part of the jungle. What they don't know is that there's a very hungry tiger waiting for them along the... Yeah, I know, isn't it scary? This is the story. Now, I'm going to tell you, kids, I'm going to ask you to repeat after me, because I don't want to use words that people don't understand, and I want, since the kids are here today, I want them to learn this idea, is that that's what we call an omniscient narrator. So kids say that, om, nish, ent, omniscient, narrator. Say it all together. 
You got it. An omniscient narrator is one who knows more about what's happening in the story than the people in the story. So the omniscient narrator knows there's a tiger there, but the kids don't. And when we're reading that story, we're really interested because we're wondering, what are those kids going to do when they walk down that trail to their swimming hole and a tiger is on their path? What's going to happen, kids? What's, you really want to know, don't you? I'm not going to tell you. Oh, who, okay, somebody knows. What's going to happen? Yeah, something. Somebody's going to come along and save the day. Maybe Longmire, right? Maybe somebody. somebody somehow they're going to get out of that bind. But as we read it, we're really excited. Like, how are these kids? But the narrator knows what the kids don't know. And Matthew is like this a little bit, okay? There's parts of Matthew where he's, he drops these details, these narrative details about things that Jesus does, and he says, well, these things happen so that prophecy would be fulfilled. Matthew reads that way. Sometimes Matthew talks about people's motivations for what, what they do, which is funny because sometimes people don't even know their own motivations. They were angry, or they were in love, or they were jealous or they wanted power, or they wanted money. And Matthew names all these things, even though the people themselves don't know. So Matthew is an omniscient narrator for parts of Matthew. But now listen to this. When it gets to the resurrection account, that omniscient narrator changes, I think, into more of an eyewitness account, so that we don't know some things that happen. Now listen. Have you ever noticed, I didn't really realize it until this week when I started thinking about this. Have you noticed that in all four of the resurrection accounts in the Gospels, not one of them describe the actual moment of the resurrection? Have you ever noticed that? Maybe, you're, maybe like me, you're just figuring it out now. Who, who, who here, I really want to know, who here has thought about this before? Because if you have, that's awesome. Yes. Oh, good. Okay, well, the, past, the former pastor and his wife have thought about it, so that's awesome, <laughs> but less, less awesome than if somebody else had, but still very awesome. Still very awesome. Very awesome. Listen to this. I, this is my own, you know, you could do Longmire fan fiction. You could write a story for Longmire. I did some Jesus fan fiction because I'm a real fan of Jesus. I decided to write a narrative, an omniscient narrative of the moment of the resurrection, and this is how it goes. At four in the morning, the corpse of Jesus, which had been dead, was brought back to life. And he took off his bloody clothes and put on a new set of clothes that an angel brought him. And he looked different and yet the same. He still had wounds from the crucifixion, but was as healthy and whole as he had ever been in his life. He took in a huge gulp of air and began to sing and praise his father for the new life that he now had. Do you like that? I think it could use some work. I, I, I want to work on it a little more. This is my Jesus fan fiction. Because, you know, there, but there's no point, actually, right? We don't get this story in the Gospels. And I would never dream of inserting it into the Gospel. I wouldn't create a new Bible for anybody. I don't think they don't need my help with that, that's for sure. But there's a gap in the story. The omniscient narrator takes a break. Nobody describes the actual moment 
of the resurrection. The only thing they describe is the empty tomb. Isn't that right? The only thing they describe is emptiness, a lack of something. And we've said this before in various times when we've worshipped together, that sometimes the Bible has great meaning in the things that it leaves out. That's worth another topic for some other day, so just put it over there. But sometimes there is great meaning in the things that the Bible leaves out. And for some reason, God left out this omniscient details of the moment of Jesus' resurrection. And that reason, I'm going to get to in just a second. But I want to talk about what Easter means real quick. Real quick, what does it mean? What does Easter mean? It means new life. It means that God wins decisively over sin and death and the devil. It means that everything else that Jesus must have, uh, has, everything else that Jesus said must have been true, right? I mean, he had made a lot of tall tales and grand claims. This is the ultimate thing that backs up his authority to say all those things because he also said, the Son of Man will be handed over to sinners and he'll be crucified and on the third day he will be raised again. He said that. And once that was true, then people could go, oh, all those other things he said about the kingdom and about all these other things, those must be true. So it really burnishes Jesus' authority. Just as he said, just as he said, it means that we can hope. Easter means that we can hope for the resurrection as well. And we do. It means all those things. But listen, Easter doesn't mean as much if there isn't somebody to tell us about it. And that's why we don't hear about the moment of Jesus' resurrection. Because God actually doesn't want us to take his word for it. It sounds kind of strange, doesn't it? God doesn't want us, didn't want to dictate to Matthew through the Holy Spirit how to write exactly that moment when Jesus gulped in his first breath of air as a new person. He doesn't want that. You know, you could say something like, you know, I have this Bible, and it has all this truth in it that I really want to tell you about it. And somebody would say, well, how do you know it's true? And if I were to say something like, well, it's true because it's the truth, well, that's no good. (laughs) It may be true that it's the truth, and I think it is the truth, but if that's my line of reasoning, it's true because it's the truth, well, you can make anything up. It's it's what's sometimes called, I think, a tautology. It's a circular line of reasoning that goes nowhere. What it really takes is the testimony of somebody else to say the tomb was empty. He wasn't there. We met him. He was alive. Hundreds of people saw him, as our, we had on our reading. We understand hundreds of people saw him after he was raised and before he went back to heaven. That is the testimony that we need. We can trust God's word up and down from now until next year, and we do. But we need, God in his wisdom said, I want someone else to testify about what happened that morning. And so for me, if you were to add to the list about what Easter is about, it is about new life, it's about resurrection, it's about new hope, it's about Jesus' authority, it's about victory, but it's about testimony, it's about telling It's about telling what happened, and and that's what the angels say. Go and tell, just as he said. Go and tell. It's all about telling and testifying about things. 
So remember I asked you when we were reading to keep track of who were the witnesses to this event? One set of witnesses were Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. That's one. But there's another set of witnesses there. Any takers? Anyone? Who? The guards. Thank you. Yes. It's funny because we have these men who were alive set to guard a dead body. They become as dead man while the dead body comes alive. It's a little bit of a contrast or juxtaposition in the scriptures there. It's a beautiful sort of play. They are also witnesses. Of what, though? Well, it seems from our reading, they saw the angel appear. He was in bright clothing, flashing like lightning. They see the angel roll the stone away. And then I guess it kind of goes blurry for them, doesn't it? What happens next? Well, they kind of faint, right? They just kind of keel over. And uh, so do we have their testimony? And how good is their testimony? The, the women, we know their testimony. They were friends of Jesus. But here are some people who are kind of enemies of Jesus. In a weird way, their testimony actually matters more, don't you think? Isn't it more valuable? If your enemies admit that what happened actually happened, that's, that carries a lot of weight because they have all sorts of reasons to actually undermine your story. But if your enemies bear up the story and said, yes, there was an angel, and yes, the angel rolled the stone away, then that had a lot to go for it. It turns out that these soldiers, and I'm assuming that they're Roman soldiers, pretty sure, it's kind of hard to tell from the text because it doesn't say Roman soldiers, it says guards, but I'm pretty sure they're Roman soldiers. The Roman soldiers had to swear an oath when they entered the service. It was known as the sacramentum. Isn't that interesting, that word? It's like our word for sacraments. They swore a sacred oath. It used to be that they swore an oath to the, to the Senate and to the Roman people. But once the emperor became so powerful and became God in his own image, or in his own mind, they had to swear an oath to the emperor himself and to their general of their, of their legion. And the sacramentum stated that the soldier would fulfill his conditions of service on pain of punishment up to and including death. So that when they joined the army, they said, if I make mistakes while I'm in the army, you may punish me in any way you want, even up to my death. And discipline was extremely tough in the Roman army. And that's why they were so effective, is that they weren't a disorderly lot, but they were a well-ordered lot, and they were generally pretty successful when they went to war. There was a historian named Polybius who describes a dis punishment about the various different levels of crimes. One of the crimes would be for cowardice. Cowardice itself was a punishable offense. I think it is in the military today, too. If you're accused of cowardice, it's, it's a form of court-martial. There would be a court-martial sentence for desertion or dereliction of duty. And if a soldier was found guilty of dereliction of duty, in other words, not doing their duty that they were assigned, they could be up to stoned or beaten to death in front of the assembled troops and by their fellow soldiers because they had failed their fellow soldiers and brought danger to their whole group. Does that make sense? So that was the sort of thing. Now, why am I talking about this? It seems that when these soldiers fell asleep, at their posts, that's dereliction of duty, isn't it? 
That's something that they probably didn't want to tell anybody about. That's something they wanted to keep to themselves. Oh, by the way, we, we fainted <laughs> guarding a tomb. <laughs> That's not going to look good on their report. You know, the, in fact, it could lead to really serious consequences. Maybe they'd have a commander who'd be a little sympathetic and go, well, don't let that happen again. But probably not. It might be much more serious. You fell asleep at your post. You endangered the rest of the people. Doesn't matter if you fainted. Why? We don't believe in angels making people faint. That was, that's on you. Well, go to your Bibles. Go back to your Bibles, to Matthew 28, because there's more testimony to come that puts a wrinkle in this story of the guards. Matthew 28, 11. Even Matthew has, and not only anticipated this, but I believe actually interviewed one of these guards. And we'll find out why in just a second. It's a real Longmire thing, all right? It's great. Matthew 28, 11 reads like this. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. So they came clean about it. But what happens next? When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him, and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So you have to admit to dereliction, but we've got your back. Just say that instead of an angel who rolled away the stone, say we fell asleep and his disciples must have come and moved that stone and taken his body away so they could parade around like Jesus was raised from the dead, just as he said. Do you see the, sort of the wheels turning in this system? And so evidently the soldiers agree to this. They agree to take the money. Everybody's taking money at the latter parts of the Gospels. Have you noticed that? Everybody's taking some money. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed, and this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. And so that would kind of end the story, wouldn't it? Think about it. So maybe that's a dead end. Maybe the soldiers aren't eyewitnesses. Is that possible? Because they got bought off. What if you read in the newspaper that there were three people who witnessed an event that they were all culpable in? And they made an oath to each other that none of them would ever talk about it with anyone and that they would all take it to their grave. What would you think? If you were reading it out in the paper, what would you think? One of them had talked about it. At least one, right? Maybe two, maybe three. Somebody found out somehow, and if the only three people who knew about it, right, so if all these soldiers took money and agreed not to talk about this, but yet we have a record of it, at least one of them talked about it later on. Now, this is just my theory, so you can chalk it up. This is, this is fan fiction, but it's, I think there's something to it. This is just my theory, is that I think one of these soldiers who witnessed those things that day and was puzzled by it, and more than puzzled by it, amazed by it, saw an angel, saw him roll away the stone, felt the earthquake, fell asleep, fainted away, woke up and found that Jesus was gone, went and took money for his silence, that over the years it began to weigh on him somehow. 
And the disciples, the apostles, they stayed in Jerusalem. They settled in Jerusalem after all this, after all of this had blown over. They stayed, and they, they preached in the temple, and they healed people. And they were hauled in front of the authorities, and sometimes they were thrown in jail. And so it's quite likely that these soldiers would have met the disciples over and over and over again in Jerusalem. And my thinking is that one of them, at least, decided to tell the story and that Matthew found him and wrote this all down. And so now we have a second witness, a second testimony about the resurrection from a source who had a whole lot to lose by telling it. Now think about that, right? Because not only now does he have to admit to dereliction of duty, but to bribe-taking as well. Both of these things are bad for soldiers. So that's powerful testimony. It's about testimony, isn't it? I think this man became a believer himself. He took a risk. It's even possible that he was telling Matthew this story while he was in chains himself for his own crimes, but he probably thought it was worth it because he had come to faith and had new life in Jesus. God doesn't want us to just take his word for He wants us to hear it from other people, even unexpected people, from Mary and the other Mary, from one or more of the guards. He wants us to tell because all of what Easter means doesn't mean that much unless we tell the story about it, unless the good news gets out there. And so I'm going to sort of preach to myself right now, and I'm going to offer you today only my words. I'm going to give you my testimony about what the resurrection means to me because I can only speak for myself. And this is what I have to say. I have seen God's power to resurrect things, including Jesus. This is my testimony. This is what I've seen happen. I've seen God resurrect marriages. I've seen God resurrect relationships. I've seen God resurrect churches and people not from physical death, but from spiritual death. I've seen spiritual oppression being lifted and banished by prayer. I've seen people change. I've seen people give up old ways and old toxic things because they began to believe in Jesus. I've seen these things. And I've seen other things in my life that are sad, that are horrible. I've seen both my parents pass away. And I'm kind of young, but not too young. We'll get to that. My father died when I was 20 of liver cancer. My mother died when I was 44. She died of kidney failure. I've seen my own marriage dissolve. I got married when I was much younger, and it it only lasted for a few years. I've seen friends die, cousins die, friends get divorced, friends battle with drugs and alcohol, friends go to prison. I had mental illness in my family, and it's debilitating and horrible. Every day, I get closer to my own end, and the reminders of my own end are everywhere. Kaya asked me to grow a beard a few weeks ago, and because I'm wrapped around her fingers, I tried. And, yes, it's true. And it came in so gray this time, like it has never come in gray before. And I... I was back and forth. I thought, it looks kind of distinguished and wise, you know. But, uh, and I was willing to go with the color. It was okay. 
but it was just so itchy that one day I couldn't take it anymore and I, sh- and I shaved it off. But there's a reminder, right? That we're getting older and the end is sometimes on its way and there's, I'll tell you what, there was cancer in my family. My father died of cancer. My grandfather died of cancer. My only two aunts died of cancer. My sister is alive, but she had cancer. And I'm only a few years away from my father's age when he died. He died when he was 52. I'm 47. This is my testimony. In the midst of all this brokenness, in the midst of the end looming, there is life and there is hope in Jesus. That's my testimony. Here's something that means a whole lot to me, and make a note of it if you can somewhere in the margin. John 12, 24. This is what it says. I tell you the truth. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, but if it dies... It produces many seeds. The gospel is that out of death, out of brokenness, out of despair, out of failed marriages, out of addictions and health problems and troubles of all kind, life can spring forth because of Jesus. And I've seen God at work saying, unless a kernel falls to the ground and dies, unless a kernel falls to the ground and dies, Unless a kernel falls to the ground and dies, only then can new life come out of death. New things come when the old cannot hold this life anymore. New hope comes in Jesus who did not remain just one seed. He followed through on what he said and he let himself go into the ground and die. And he came up and he produced many, many seeds. I see a hundred of them or so in this room right now. After thousands of years, I have new life now because of Jesus. And I have new life at the end of my life. And it's because of Jesus and his death on the cross and his resurrection on the third day. That's my testimony. And you know what I think I'd like us to do, if you're willing, and it takes um, some faith, and it takes some prayer, and it takes um, maybe a little prompting, is in the next months, I'd actually like us every Sunday for one person in the church to come up here for three, four, five minutes and give their testimony about what the resurrection has done for them. Tell us your story so we can be edified by it. You give your testimony about the risen Christ so that we can grow and learn from it. And so actually, I'm going to be emailing you all or talking to you one-on-one and asking you, do we have any takers for next Sunday? Let's see a hand. Who can give a testimony next Sunday? All we need is one, and then then the ice will break. One person. Do I see a hand? There we go. Victoria will do it. All right. Thank you, Victoria. Of course, you work here, so that's kind of... We'll take it. We'll take it. We'll take it. And after that, she'll, she'll, uh, she'll prime the pump for us. And after that, we'll ask other people to come up here. Tell us your testimony. What does a resurrection mean to you? But for now, let's try this. Christ is risen. Let's try again. Christ is risen. 
praise God for the people who took the risks to tell us about the empty tomb. Praise God for the women who went to look and did not give up hope. Praise God for a soldier who came to faith and gave testimony about the empty tomb. Praise God that this is the Jesus show, that the main character can't stay dead. Praise God that we have new life today and forever because Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. Amen.